welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or on one of our loved radio syndicate partners or on the Green Majority podcast. I am uh, David Hostetter with Stefan Hostetter. How you doing? Lauren Latour, Fatima Syed, and Emma McIntosh are also joining us today to discuss... The election. Good Lord. Yeah. All right. So recording this on Wednesday, the 4th of November, uh, the election is still technically too close to call. Although it looks to be leaning towards Biden being president with the Democrats controlling the House and Republicans controlling the Senate. Trump has said that he has already won the election and is trying to drum up his base with conspiracies about voter fraud, while news outlets and election representatives frantically remind people that the vote counting process is completely secure. Um, Inside Climate News and Politico have both both published recent articles lamenting that the U.S. would be leaving the Paris Agreement on the 4th of November no matter who wins. Biden has pledged to rejoin the agreement on his first day in office, which would bring them officially back in 30 days later. And as Bob Berwin writes for ICN, quote, if it's backed up with ambitious domestic climate policies, a green recovery from the pandemic, support from Congress, and a renewed push for international collaboration on, on various climate initiatives, the U.S. reentry could help reinvigorate worldwide efforts to transition to a net-zero carbon economy by 2050. The U.S. would have to redetermine its carbon reductions commitments, known as Nationally Determined Contributions, or NDCs, for the purpose of collectively limiting long-term global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Carl Matheson points out for Politico that Obama's NDC aimed to cut not quite 30% of 2005 level emissions by 2025, which is something Biden could go back to, but he has said that he wants to make a stronger commitment and most other countries will likely be raising their ambitions over the next year. The U.S. still owes $2 billion to the Green Climate Fund, which transfers money to countries less able to afford it so they can lower their emissions too. But there will also be pressure on the U.S. and other rich countries to double their contributions to the fund. So thanks uh, first uh, to Fatima, Lauren, and Emma for joining our elections panel. Uh, Wonderful to have you all here. What we're working with as an understanding right now is, as Dave mentioned, we record this on Wednesday. So you as a listener on Friday know more than we do. We're presuming uh, for the sake of this conversation that that Biden will win the presidency, lose the Senate, and keep the House. Maybe this is going to be a time capsule, and you'll get to hear our thoughts if that is the reality, and in two days it might be different, but that's where it seems to be heading right now, so that's sort of the the version we're going to go with. Um, also, because if Trump wins, I think the climate just lights itself on fire and moves on. So, you know, I don't know if there's a lot to talk about in that scenario. Uh, so, but first, um, first to you, Fatima, uh, first thoughts and big takeaways. Uh, what, what sort of strikes you about this in general? Uh, this being the entire world being on fire? Or... Uh, yes, or specifically the election results from Tuesday. Um, I think my brain is broken, but um, honestly, the, shock, the biggest shock to me is uh, that the needle hasn't moved as much as we thought it would. Um, it's been both disappointing and disheartening to realize that after everything we've seen and heard and bear born witness to in the last four years, um, that it didn't change minds and hearts as much as, as we thought it would. Um, and honestly, like I've been like running through a list of things that he did or he said, he being Trump. Um, and I, I don't understand what, 
went wrong? Like, what did people not understand about the, him or his policies or what happened in the last four years that would lead him to to keep voting for, for someone like him. I think it's indicative that the Democratic Party has a lot of work to do. I, I think the fact that they couldn't sort of, you know, um, couldn't capitalize on, on the, these emotions um, it is, uh, you know, a, a shock for me. And I also think the Democratic process needs to be strengthened um, because it was crazy the last 24 hours. Yeah, and it continues to be. Um, the, the, the one number, the stat that was thrown at me last night that I blew my mind, uh, was that Biden won an extra million votes in Texas than Hillary Clinton, but so did Trump. So Trump, without appealing to any new human beings, seemingly like his, his doubling, tripling down on his, on his quote unquote base still brought out an extra million people in Texas to vote for, you know, xenophobia basically, uh, which just depresses me to no end. But, but to you, Lauren. Yeah, I guess sort of um, echoing and then expanding on this theme of like how little the needle has actually moved. Um, something I was sort of interested to learn about today is that um, you have the Lincoln Project and what's the other one? Uh, Republican voters against Trump, both operating out of the states, raised a heck of a ton of money um, throughout the election to try to sway basically like moderate like you could say left-leaning, but but moderate conservative voters to try to pull them over to to vote for Biden this time around. I think the Lincoln Project raised something like 67 million and Republican voters against Trump raised something like 10 million um, on their part. And despite all of this effort to pull over moderate Republicans, despite all the effort to to kind of temper leftist policies that that were popular during the primary in an effort to sort of appeal to the centrists of the world and and... <laughs> To, to use the phrase again, moderate Republicans, um, we saw an increase in registered Republicans showing up to the polls for Trump. In the 2016 election, again, these are all like early, early uh, polls and exit polls, but I think the numbers, I think in 2016, it was like 90% of registered Republicans turned out and voted for Trump. Um, and this year it was 93% of registered Republicans. So like not a huge jump, but like a jump, um, despite all of those efforts to make Biden appealing, to make voting for a Democratic candidate appealing to folks who might not necessarily consider themselves really enthusiastic Trump voters, or or I'm sure you have a lot of conservatives out there, well, I know you do, who are like, I'm not a racist, I'm not a xenophobe, I support LGBTQ rights, and despite all the efforts to appeal to those people, um, it, it, it didn't really result in much of a shift or much positive change that way. It looks like new votes that did come either came from folks who hadn't voted in the past or from what we are seeing early early on again um it, it looks like some white men <laughs> might have might have flipped or came out in larger numbers for for the democrats this time around which again these are all early numbers remain to be seen need to be clarified but um yeah not as much shift as we would have hoped yeah yeah i'm i'm honestly terrified like the reality of the world like without the pandemic i think trump wins this in a in a landslide which is just depressing as everything to me um uh, but to but to you emma yeah i think i mean the main thing that i think it's important that we remember is that this election was really about covid19 um and that's an issue on which the united states is very worryingly deeply divided. Um, and unfortunately, uh, climate denial, COVID denial, they all kind of 
exist in the same ecosystem in many people's minds and people who subscribe to one often subscribe to the other so all these things are very mixed up together but i think especially on the heels of the the last canadian election where climate was really having a moment and should have been having a moment um i think people who care a lot about this were hoping that climate would have a moment here too and it just wasn't about that i don't think it was on anyone's mind you know like we're we're out here freaking out about the ele election's effect on Keystone XL and Americans don't even realize that it will affect that pipeline at all, you know? Yeah. Um, it's just, <laughs> what a weird world. And um, when, when trying to write about the impact of this election, the same thing kept coming up again and again. Like I would just find myself writing the same sentence over and over, which was, if Biden wins, there is maybe a shot and if Trump wins, things are very bad. Um, and that applied to climate as well as COVID. So, I mean, Biden's going to be up against it here without full Congress, but at least it's a start. Yeah, um, this was written by Kate Aronoff in The New Republic, uh, a piece that came out today. And obviously, I don't know where these exit polls were connect were conducted. They could have they could have been done in like Connecticut or something like that, but. Um, when polled, 70% of voters did support increased government spending on green and renewable energy, and 72% of um, voters polled did express concern to some degree for climate change. Um, and like we did see that like the green planks in Biden's policy that did sort of come out over the last few weeks, there was a bit of a push from the Biden campaign this last weekend to pull over voters who are concerned about climate. Like, like that did have some sway. You're right. You're absolutely right, Emma. It, it was by no means the overarching discourse of this, of, of this election, especially the last few weeks. But it is interesting that like we continue to see this is something that voters care about and are interested in. It's just not the sexy elections topic we wish it was. Um, and and, it, and it, I don't know, it doesn't seem to reflect itself in politics at all. Yeah, it, it became a get out the vote campaign, really, by Biden. Like Biden used his climate policy as a way to try to get, you know, young voters, really, that I think specifically to, to come out and vote for him. There, the, I, think you, I think that poll might have been Fox News poll, which makes it even funnier, uh, that said that level of support. Um, but even the one, the one exit poll that blew my mind before I go to the next question was that some, in the New York Times exit polls, something like 30% of people, I think it was 29, but 29% of uh, people who voted for Trump said that climate change was a serious issue that needed to be solved. And I'm like, how do you square that? Like, in, in the, It's one of these things where there's just a certain set of people which I just won't understand, I think. Um, but any last thoughts before I move on to a more climate change specific question? I guess it's just a good reminder that we know that people don't vote based on policy. They vote based on identity and, and moral values. And this is a really, really perfect example of that playing out in electoral politics. I ain't got no gavel. I ain't finna fight nobody battle. I just want to be free. I ain't finna be nobody chattel. Nobody chattel. Nobody chattel. So climate policy. Uh, what does this mean for American climate policy first and foremost, starting with you, Fatima? Look, so we're recording this on the day that the U.S. has officially withdrawn from the Paris Agreement. Um, we knew this day was coming. It, you know, it's today is also literally one year since Trump signed that executive order withdrawing um, uh, America from the Paris Accord. It's a huge deal. 
um, you know, America is now the only country in the world that is not participating in this global voluntary agreement to reduce carbon emissions. And it is the country that produces the most emissions. So, you know, everything about this is, is, is bad from a climate change perspective. If, you know, if the pundits are right and Biden does win tonight, tomorrow, whenever the votes are counted, um, he has promised to re-enter the accord on day one. He said he's going to pressure China, Brazil, and other countries to cut their own emissions, preserve their forests, keep carbon out of our atmosphere. Um, you know, there is going to be a lot of building back to do when it comes to American U.S. American climate policy, and it's going to have a bearing on Canadian climate policy. Um, as Emma mentioned at the beginning, um, Trump supports the Keystone XL pipeline. Biden has said he would withdraw support uh, approval for it. Biden has also promised transition away from oil-powered vehicles, so the U.S. would need less oil. Um, from my perspective and from everything I've read, a Biden victory could honestly be a moment of truth for Canadian oil. Um, and, and it could be a, a, a moment of reckoning if, if he does follow through everything he says. Um, so we're, we're heading towards interesting times, if that's the case, um, from a climate perspective. But again, a lot of building back needs to be done. America has lost sort of its stature when it comes to climate policy globally. Like there was a conversation, Washington Post wrote today about uh, Pompeo meeting a Mauritian um, a government official, the Mauritian government official was like, uh, you pulled out the Paris Accord, um, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously, um, why did you do that? And Pompeo basically said, it was a joke. The accord was a joke. So, and stood by the decision. So there's a lot of building back up that the U.S. under Biden would have to do. Um, and that will be interesting to see. Yeah. And it's not actually even that easy to rejoin, to my understanding, either. It's actually a bit of a complicated process. Um, so uh, to, to you, uh, Lauren. Um, actually, to, to speak to that process a little bit, um, from what I have seen, it actually isn't all that complicated. Um, Biden does have to initially send a letter to the UN requesting to be allowed back. And um, there's a period of 30 days uh, for them to sort of grant or deny that. They will almost definitely... <laughs> definitely grant permission to rejoin. And then yes, the states does have to submit um, an updated nationally um, determined target. So like a, a new NDC, but for what it's worth, so does everyone else. Um, it, all other countries who are, who are like, who have ratified the Paris agreement um, do have to submit a new NDC theoretically by the end of this year, but technically they'll, they'll be taken up until uh, COP26 next year in Glasgow. So there, there sort of is that, there's that condition that has to be filled, but it's a condition that everybody has to fill. It's not specific punishment for them bailing on it. Um, so by no means is it like a simple process, but it's also, it's, it's, it's not going to be the hardest thing in the world. Um, but, uh, but Fatima was right. What, what they are going to have to work on in addition to actually just like really building up policy domestically in order to, to turn things around nationally and globally, we are going to have to see some moves made on the international stage in order to build back that reputation that has been so tarnished and so squandered over the last few years. That being said, though, Canada had to do the same thing. Um, we have to remember that for a decade, I believe, at least, when Stephen Harper was prime minister, Canada did not 
have a good showing at the international negotiating table when it came to climate change. Um, so like we're, we're including in there the period like post Kyoto around the, around Copenhagen and then, and then pre Paris, um, Canada was like, had a really, really tarnished reputation on the international stage when it came to climate policy. And when Trudeau came into power, they had to work to sort of that's, I, 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 I'm sure people remember when Trudeau came to Paris and he said, Canada's back. And like, I mean, yeah, we all look on that with chagrin now because like, great, what did it end up meaning when all is said and done? But um, other countries have had to build up that reputation again. Canada's one of them. Um, And uh, I, I think people will welcome a Biden government back internationally with open arms because I think people will be pretty stoked to work with um, a somewhat more sane, somewhat more um, earnest negotiating team going forward. But again, there's a lot to prove and they have a lot of headway to make in the coming years in order to make up for those lost four. Yeah. And and to me, the biggest question, uh, which I'll get to sort of after I throw to Emma, is, is how they can do this. You know, without the Senate, I am deeply, I'm, I'm pessimistic to say the least. Uh, but Emma, to you. Yeah, I want to talk about one thing Fatima mentioned was um, this reckoning for the Canadian oil patch. And, you know, obviously there are going to be challenges like we're about to talk about. Um, it is not easy for a president to ram through legislation. Um, but I think on a symbolic level, um, this could lead to at least some level of change just because um, it is really difficult for the U.S. to be out of lockstep for Canada. And it's more difficult for us than it is for them. The reason that happens is because Canadian businesses really don't like it when they have to follow extra rules that their competitors in the U.S. don't. Um, Our economies are so integrated that they feel it kind of makes it hard for them to compete. Um, So one example of that would be what happened after Kyoto, right? Um, The U.S. pulled out and Canadian businesses went on this insane lobbying blitz because they felt like they were getting screwed, for lack of a better word, and eventually Harper pulled out. Um, That is something that I think Canada would like to avoid. And if the carbon price is going to increase after 2022, which it will have to to really be effective, um, the U.S. needs to be doing something as well. Otherwise, it becomes very challenging. And so if the U.S. is at least making strides in that direction, um, that can kind of be a good influence on us. It can kind of lessen the pressure on the government, which, you know, maybe they shouldn't be acquiescing to anyways, but um, it it makes it an easier environment for them. Um, Also, you know, the U.S. is the oil patch's biggest customer. Um, Part of the reason why they really want Keystone XL in Alberta is because it would deliver oil more directly to this big market on the Gulf Coast where refineries can process that heavy crude. Um, If the U.S. just doesn't want that oil anymore, even if there's a, you know, at least some sort of decrease in that demand, that has a huge impact on the Alberta economy. Um, So it'll be interesting years ahead, I think very turbulent years. Um, We'll see how much Biden can actually do, though. Yeah. But to me, we talked on the show previously about the amount of money that the Albertan government has put, at least in loans, towards the concept of building Keystone XL, which Biden could just say no to on day one. Like, that's one of the few things Biden can do is actually stop is stop the Keystone XL pipeline. You know, there's... 
Yeah, you can do like like that's like that's the one power he really had. And honestly, I think that's what's interesting about this is that I think what you could have seen had they won the Senate is maybe actually a much more comprehensive climate policy that would have maybe maybe allowed for some things like this to go through because they would have other plans. Whereas when you only have the executive branch, what you're limited to is very specific things, right? Like he can give the two billion dollars he owes uh, to to the to the to the world in regards to green infrastructure that that the, that they that they owe on the climate fund. You know, he can stop Keystone XL. He can re-input the 100 or so different uh regulations that that Trump has ripped up over the past little bit. But once you get beyond that, you start running into problems that because he doesn't own the, the, because the Supreme Court will be super uh conservative. He doesn't have the Senate you he's going he's boxed in in a way that that really limits the number of options that you really have to act here and and i yeah to me i think that that's going to have a a number of impacts and then you which i think will require if he's going to have any climate chops it's going to require a that he does everything he can in the places he can which is going to definitely i think include things like you know like keystone xl um, so, but let's, let's, let's dive a little bit deeper into, into Canadian climate policy and, and what we sort of see how those two things intersect. Um, so to you, Fatima. Um, look, I think it's the first thing, you know, Biden will have to do is set the stage for climate discussions and climate conversations, right? On an international level, especially with Canada, uh, being a direct neighbor. And, you know, as I, I keep saying this, because I think it's so important the groundwork that he needs to lay before we even get to a table to have those discussions is so intense. Like the Trump administration rolled back more than a hundred environmental and climate regulations. They slashed funding for climate programs in like the hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and, and U.S. emissions are, you know, all over the place. Um, it, the U.S. is not on track to meet its Paris commitment. You know, they needed to cut 26% from 2005 levels to 2025. There's a lot of groundwork to, to, to lay out. And I agree with Lauren that, you know, in theory, the actual getting back on to the Paris Accord or getting back into any international climate conversation is theoretically easy. The fact is that it's going to require way more than a sweeping presidential signature from Biden. Like, we're going to have to see... Um, like significant commitments to emissions reductions and green energy plans before any country can take America seriously again. Having said that, the doom and gloom aside, individual states in, in the US are doing work on this. So it will be interesting to see how Biden can work with them to maybe take that to the international stage and work with countries like Canada on it. Like, you know, um, more than 500 cities and counties across the U.S. across the United States and 25 state governors have formed a coalition along with thousands of businesses, universities, and so many groups um, to help reduce emissions on a local level. Um, you know, Bloomberg today commented, uh, the former uh, governor of New York, I want to say, my brain is mush. Mayor? Mayor of New York City. Mayor, mayor, mayor. Of New York City. thank you. <laughs> The former mayor of New York uh, was one of the first to comment on the Paris Agreement withdrawal, saying that uh, we stepped up, um, so we're going to keep working on it, even if uh, the federal government isn't. And then, sorry, I know I'm speaking a lot, but the last point I want to make is that we have Wall Street now pledging 
to Paris commitments. So even though the U.S. is not part of Paris, uh, the Paris Agreement, a bank like J.P. Morgan Chase over the past year has declared just last month that it would become, quote, Paris aligned. So the federal government is going to be, you know, seeing all that pressure and, and could work with industry and sort of local government to boost their standing in the international stage to have those conversations with Canada and elsewhere. That's an interesting suggestion because that sort of mirrors what Trudeau did to work around Trump, you know, just going directly to the states to try to work in some ways. That 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 you could actually do that from the inside the government the United States government is a is actually a fascinating plan. Um to you, Lauren. I guess uh, I, th- I think one of the things I wanted to sort of highlight is that w- in, in a way, Canada does have to benefit from Biden being elected, um, specifically as it pertains to climate policy and environmental policy, is that um, Canada has never been all that good at like striking out on its own when it comes to um, environmental regulation and policy. And, and for one of the reasons that, that Emma had mentioned um, sort of in, in the last round of questioning is that is that it can put us at a theoretical financial and economic disadvantage if we have a whole bunch of taxation and regulation on companies and the states doesn't. It's, it's just too easy for, for organizations to go down there. So, so we can benefit from that first and foremost if heavier regulations are put on American companies because then it kind of eliminates that sense of competition if, and it levels the playing field. Um, what that could potentially look like is, is back when Trump rolled back methane regulation in the states you saw Canada immediately pump the brakes on putting out our own methane regulation. Now that's obviously starting to come around. I think, I think we're looking to get methane regulation any day now, if we haven't already got it this year and I'm just sort of down on my research, but um, yeah, we, in some ways, although Trudeau has tried to um, set an example and show that Canada can stand on its own two feet and, and can work sort of bilaterally with, with States and with other sort of, um, subnational bodies in 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 america um we do kind of need our big brother to show the way and to validate some of our actions so that's kind of what i'm really hopeful for and really looking forward to is canada having somebody to nudge them forward on climate policy because we were too eager to take the states as an excuse to um drag our feet when it comes to climate and of course like that's just saying federally um obviously uh, there are certain provincial governments that were over the moon to be able to have an ally in sort of like uh, petrostate ambitions down south. So um, really, really curious to see if Biden does win, um, what actions look like out of provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan and those who have slightly more of a vested interest in the oil and gas industry. Yeah. Uh, so the methane, to my understanding, actually, we are looking to get uh, Dale Marshall from environmental defense to come on the show in the next couple of weeks because of that exact, uh, the regulations are coming out, although it sounds like they're not going to actually meet what we need them to be. They're all, they're still, they're still weaker than they need to be. Uh, so you can, people, people want to tune in a future show to learn a bit more about methane. We're going to cover that shortly. Uh, but Canadian climate policy, Emma, you've obviously, you know, been, been following the U.S. election and climate policy for some time. Your thoughts? Yeah, I really agree with um, what Lauren was pointing out there, which is really important. Um, I think, like, it's hard to say what will happen beyond that. One thing that is really, really interesting to me is just because of, like, the quirky ways that pipelines and energy uh, projects work in the U.S., um, the same rules that 
we fight over with pipelines end up applying to green energy projects there as well. Um, so this is like a, a problem that Obama ran into. Um, he had a green agenda to, to some extent and really struggled to implement anything in it. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like the limits that may come up there may limit, I guess, like the degree to which Canada is pressured to match anything that they do, because like, who knows if they'll do anything. But um, at least when it comes to green energy projects and pipeline projects, there's going to be a lot of really uh, rule defining decisions in the next couple of years that show us which way these things are going. Um, and I think they've been meaning to figure out a better set of rules down there for a long time. So that um, that could finally be figured out. Um, I'm really, really interested to see, I guess, how Canada acts with like its big brother kind of back, not in like a, like a creepy, like dystopian big brother, but I mean like a brotherly big brother, you know, like that relationship is often described that way. Um, I think the elder Trudeau, talked about us being like a mouse in bed with an elephant um, mm -hmm. <laughs> and like how everything they do uh, we, we feel every single time they roll over right but they they don't really notice us at all so um, I think that like whatever small things they do might have big ripple effects here one really tiny example is just like um, attempts to get stuff going with electric vehicles in like the Windsor and Detroit regions where there's already vehicle manufacturing right um, there are people in Windsor who really want to get that going and it gets a lot easier to get that going in Windsor if it's already going in Detroit or if there's plans to. So lots of little examples like that where we might see really interesting change. Yeah, man, the 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 fact that if Biden had won, if they had won the Senate, the amount of which you would have seen, I think, the Trudeau government realize quite quickly how far behind they like the fact that the Trudeau government is unquestionably further to the right, I think, than the Biden administration on climate to me is mind blowing. You know, the fact that that Biden can come out and say we are going to end fossil fuel subsidies, which is something that Trudeau has completely failed to do in any way, shape or form is and you know and then goes on to buy a pipeline instead and has even said that even recent more recently said that he's going to work with Kenny to keep Keystone XL approved you know up and against the Biden administration saying no we're just not going to you know these things are to me Canada was going to be left behind so quickly I think if you actually got a a functioning senate and now we sort of have this weird at least 2 years although I'm not super optimistic about 2022 you know to maybe you know find some way to move ourselves forward a little bit. Uh, but so last question, and it, it's sort of a multi-part question a little bit, uh, the world and climate change. How does this impact the world's ability to solve climate change? And, and my, my twist on that question, which you can also run, up, run with if you like, is if you were the world, if you're Europe, if you're other parts of the world that's looking to form a base to decide you know, to move forward climate change action in, in, the, in, the, in the world, do you even take the states seriously? Like, how much can you trust the states not to go back to someone in four years that will tear it all up again? And do you then start looking to other places? You know, like my The biggest concern I had, one of the biggest ones I had, was that the United States pulling back, if, if China actually moves forward on its net zero targets that it's, that it's outlining, 
I can very easily see most of the world lining up with China to be the leader on climate change as the United States spins its wheels. And without the Senate, the United States is going to be mostly spinning its wheels. So thoughts on that thought or also just how do you think this impacts the world's ability to solve climate change? Uh, starting with you, Fatima. Um, I think in the absence of uh, an American leader uh, who cared about climate change, um, along with many other things, um, the European Union and China really stepped up. I think in the last four years, we've seen a lot of encouraging things from from the European Union. Um, They've laid out a very radical Green Deal plan that they've been working on. There's been talk about a carbon border tax, which has been really interesting. Um, uh, You know, they have you know, propose things and have been talking about these things the last four years that America hasn't, that quite frankly, Canada could have, but didn't. Um, and it's been very impressive. You know, the, the new European Parliament has a, a person dedicated to, you know, figure out, figuring out the European Green New Deal. Um, that is effectively leadership, right, on the climate policy. I don't know how any new American leader fills that void without sort of battling with that. In an ideal world, obviously you want all the major powers on the table to, you know, solve this global problem, this global crisis. Um, But if you have a continent that is miles ahead of you, um, you're going to be playing catch up for a very, very long time. And frankly, what's the incentive then for a European Union leader to even work with the US, you know? If, if Biden's coming to the table for the first time and I'm a European Parliament member, I'm like, okay, yeah, but we've already done like half the things that you're proposing. Why does working with you benefit us? They're, they're going to have to, and I know I, I sound like a broken record, but they're going to have to make a really, really strong case for anyone to consider working with them um, on this. Um, and I think the sort of the only advantage I can see is financial, frankly, like if you can work in the in the states and, and sort of, you know, deliver green energy programs of any kind, there's a lot of financial incentive there. But again, the country has been so fickle and so topsy turvy and such a roller coaster on this file. I don't see how even that would be a driving incentive for any country to to do it um and then obviously we mentioned china you mentioned china in your preamble it's it's done so much work in africa and latin america it's you know pledged to reach climate neutrality before 2060 they're miles ahead i like i get i don't see a world where the u.s is working with china and the european union on this because they're already doing so much like like i i I don't see it yeah fair (laughs) um to you lauren yeah, I won't expand much um, on what was just said, but I think one of the only ways that that the state sort of can come back and demonstrate that they're coming back swinging and they're really ready to play with um, with with the EU and with China, who have made such headway, is to come back and to immediately start pumping money into climate finance. Because that's the thing. Like, yes, they're really behind on climate policy, but where the U.S. can step in and immediately show they're valuable and fill a void is with like tech transfer to countries that might not have green tech immediately and readily available to them. And and like I said, in climate finance, um, somebody's already mentioned it on today's episode, but under under Obama, there was something like a $3 billion pledge to climate finance before Obama left office. He was only able to get $1 billion out the door. Um, and, and unfortunately, I don't actually know what um, 
sort of what, what the U.S.'s quote-unquote fair share contribution to climate finance would be. But I think we immediately need to see them, them, them stepping in and, and trying to fill that void um, and making sure that when they do put money towards climate finance internationally um, to support like small island developing nations and, and least developed countries is to make sure that like they're not in the form of scary loans that people are going to have to owe back. Like those need to be grants. Those need to be essentially like uh, just like financial transfers and they need to be dedicated not only to go towards mitigation and adaptation, but we need to see the states put money towards loss and damage because that's actually a place where we could act, where we could see some leadership because we're still seeing so much hesitancy from more developed uh, nations and, and northern countries um, to actually put money on the line when it comes to loss and damage. And we, we see that ask over and over and over again from the global south. Uh, and to you, Emma. I feel like uh, Fatima and Lauren said everything that was on my mind already, which is amazing. Um, I guess, like, I think the world can, you know, figure out its own path forward without the U.S. on climate policy, and that may be one nice-ish legacy of the Trump era, is that, like, I guess... It, in my lifetime and in my parents' lifetime, the U.S. has been a global leader. We're now in this era where that appears to be changing, that appears to be slipping. And we don't know if the U.S. is going to be a global leader on this or on anything, really, for much longer. Um, and, you know, who knows how that could play out? I'm obviously not a political scientist um, or someone who's an expert in international relations. But I think, you know, there might be some sense in being prepared for a world where the U.S. is not going to take the lead on this stuff. And even if they, they did, would it matter? So um, people have figured out a way to do it, or at least to, to try in, um, in the last four years. And regardless of whether the U.S. Um, becomes trustworthy in that arena in the next four years and whether it decides to stick with that, um, you know, people are going to have to do something. Otherwise, we literally die in a, a giant ball of flames. So um, <laughs> not to get too, too bleak about it, but I think, um, I think that people are very smart and there are a lot of people who want to make a difference. And we've seen other countries start to take action on their own, right? Like other countries are already talking about a green recovery. Um, while Biden was trying to debate it, uh, with Trump, you know, people were already making moves to start doing it. So it doesn't have to be all bad, maybe. Oh, yeah, I, I think that's Biden's actually 2022 message. Avoid ball of flames. Biden 2022. Um, the yeah. <laughs> the yeah. So, A, thank you all so much. I think that I think that actually your last point there, I think, is for me the the point that will uh, that I that we can end on, um, which is that at the very least, this like I remember yesterday I was having a conversation with a friend of mine and they, and they sort of like it, what will happen if by if, if Trump wins and I'm like it's over I I, I don't even know how I, I I wouldn't really know how climate policy or or you know or like the, you know there was an article called the world is on the or the world is on the ballot that came out yesterday a couple of days ago which which I thought was a relatively you know not too hyperbolic I guess is what I'll say uh, because of the fact that just, you know, another four years of Trump would have been disastrous. And so, and so, you know, four years of, at the very least, new regulations returning to the, to the, to the United States and, 
you know, as you mentioned, as you've as you've all mentioned in some ways, the fact that civil society is actually moving forward, uh, you know, and, and from the encouragement of the president could be could be big. He honestly could just end fossil fuels and do and 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 do that. I, I like I like I'm not well, I'm actually not entirely certain if the president has the ability to end fossil fuel subsidies or if that would be like part of the farm bill for some reason. Which honestly, probably because the farm bill has everything. But I've done my farm bill rant enough times in the show. I don't need to do it again. Uh, but, but yeah, so like that, like that to me, that's the, like this, it, the way I've described this election or the, the outcome that we're sort of presuming is going to happen on this election is that it was the worst thing that could have happened. That was not an existential crisis. And, and I think that is, that's, and yet it's not an existential crisis. And I hope those of us who, who are here can take the opportunity to organize and, and move forward in a way that gets us you know, to a, to a, to a better place. Um, with that, does anyone have any last thoughts, anything we want to, we, we missed? All right. Well, uh, thank you so much. Uh, Fatima Syed, Lauren Latour, uh, and Emma McIntosh from the National Observer. Uh, thank you all so much and enjoy your evenings. Evenings. It's in the morning. I shouldn't have said evenings. Typhoon Goni, which The Guardian called one of the most powerful typhoons in the world this year, but which The Washington Post called the world's most powerful storm in four years, landed recently in the Philippines, killing between at least 10 to 20 people and displacing another million, and putting them at greater risk of getting COVID-19 by forcing many of them to live in close quarters with a bunch of strangers. It is the third typhoon in three weeks to hit the Philippines, which usually gets around 20 large storms in a year. The Washington Post reported on the first that damages to crops, mostly of rice and corn, were of over $22 million and had affected around 20,000 farmers, and that the whole situation was exacerbated by the Philippine government having dismantled the largest news network in the country earlier this year. Democracy Now! reports that such storms are made worse not only by climate change, but also by deforestation, mining, and intensive farming. And Hurricane Eta, the 28th named storm for a season that has already previously uh, already broken previous records for the Atlantic, hit Nicaragua on the 3rd of November, bringing 95-mile-per-hour winds, as opposed to the 195-mile-per-hour winds, that Typhoon Goni just brought to the Philippines. Yeah, so Hurricane Eta is in fact ties a record from 2005 for the most number of named storms uh, ever. And and so this, in a season, sorry, is no named storms in a season. But what that means is that we're currently experiencing the worst, arguably, uh, fire season in history. And one of the worst, although I think in reality, we've actually gotten somewhat lucky. And I'm sure that not the people who have been hit by these storms would not consider themselves lucky. But in terms of overall damages, the some that we have not had a hurricane that has been as devastating as some previous hurricanes have been is what is the way I'll put that, because I do not want to undermine the devastation of a hurricane, obviously. But, you know, but one of the most prolific, at the very least, 
uh, hurricane seasons in the same year. Yeah, and so you know this is this is what we should keep expecting. The the 2020 happens to have a global pandemic, the worst fire season, and the most prolific hurricane season in the in history. That just happens to be the reality we live in. To you, Lauren. I think the point I kind of wanted to make listening to these two stories um, that are horribly upsetting is that there is still, despite the fact that we've been so absorbed in American electoral politics, especially this week, but the past several months, um, years, there is still so much happening all over the world that needs as much, if not more attention. We have these two terrible typhoons that have happened. We have, um, we have Nigerians defending themselves against uh, militarized police forces. That's something we haven't spoken about at all on the podcast, despite the fact that it's been happening a lot the past few weeks. Um, it's something we should probably read up on and, and, and chat about a little bit. We still have um, war waging between Armenians and Azerbaijanis um, in Eastern Europe. That's taken the lives of thousands of people. It's devastating. It's extremely politically fraught. Um, and, uh, and then, and then in Canada, not terrible things, but things that do need attention that we haven't been able to talk about because we've just been so observed by the behemoth that is the United States. The NDP has tabled a motion today to implement a wealth tax and Canada is expecting some sort of like updated climate policy or NDC soon. So I guess this is just a reminder to ourselves as, as hosts of the green majority and just people in general, that sometimes we need to really try to, uh, divert our attention away from the cluster F that is the United States. And remember that there are 7 billion people in the world who, who are just as worthy of our attention and our care and our journalism, not our journalism, but other people's journalism um, as the United States is. Um, because what we were reminded of during our conversation with Emma and Fatima is that yeah, the world is still going on and making progress when it comes to climate change and policy every single day. And, and we really don't need to give the states the amount of attention that we do. Yeah. And I think that I think that not only has it been the states that I think has been a particular this season, it's also also COVID has completely absorbed full stories, full, full month, you know, the number of types of disasters that we've, yeah, News cycles, exactly, yeah. The, the number of disasters that that we've almost completely ignored or have completely ignored because of the fact that there's, you know, that something's happening right around us is is tragic. Like it's, it is next level uh, difficult right now. I think to really comprehend the the level of of need that exists throughout this world right now, uh, and so. We will get to hopefully some more of those stories soon. And in a more Canadian story, though, we do have an update. So while continuing to operate their modest livelihood fishery in southwest Nova Scotia, the Sibignogadig Band has announced that they will not be fishing their nine commercial lobster licenses this season because of ongoing violent racist intimidation from non-Indigenous fishermen who have damaged and stolen traps and lobster from Mi'kmaq fishers and set fire to boats and vans and burned a lobster pound to the ground. The band will therefore still be exercising its centuries-old treaty right to fish when, whenever it wants in the area around St. Mary's Bay, a right upheld by Canada's Supreme Court in 1999, but will not be using its, com its commercial licenses to fish with other commercial fishers during the regulated season. 
While it's true that non-Indigenous fishermen have been trying to prevent the Mi'kmaq from taking what is rightly theirs, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans has also long been acting against the Supreme Court martial decision of 1999 by taking Mi'kmaq fishers to courts uh, to court simply for exercising their right to fish as upheld by our own law. We therefore have the federal government saying Mi'kmaq fishers have the right to do what they're doing. We have our own law saying the same. But we also have the DFO charging indigenous people for acting on that law, as well as a network of non-indigenous fishers trying their racist best to keep Mi'kmaq fishers out of the market. And now the Sibignagadi band is opting out of the commercial season because their fishers could likely be physically assaulted and blacklisted by lobster buyers. Regarding the recent terrorism against the modest livelihood fishery, the CBC reports that, that the Sibignagadi band announced on the 30th, that, quote, it's been the victim of a coordinated and systematic effort of the commercial fishery to undermine and destabilize its fishery. So the, the, this continues. And again, as, as, as in some ways, to get on the last uh, point that Lauren was making, the, this continues, the land back lane fight continues. Uh, the, I, to my understanding, so does the, the efforts to, to fight the, the moose hunting in, in, in northern Quebec. You know, these are consistent attacks that we're seeing across this land. And the only way is to keep paying attention and to support when you can. So if you're able to support the Mi'kmaq, please do is, and, in the ways that you can. Um, and, and push the Canadian government, especially the federal government, because it's their jurisdiction to solve this problem, to, to begin nation-to-nation conversations. Yeah, um, I think it also just um, bears saying that um, the amount of disappointment we need to be registering and the disapproval we have for not only uh, Bernadette Jordan and the uh, DFO or uh, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans right now for not stepping up and upholding the uh, Supreme Court ruling from 1999 in support of Mi'kma'ki fisher folk. We, we need to really be hammering them on that because that's it's, it's blatant um, disregard for, for a ruling that was passed and for sort of the rights and sovereignty of indigenous peoples in that region. But we also need to be looking to labor here and kind of be, again, registering some disapproval there. Um, not talking to one specific union or one specific labor body or one specific organization necessarily because it's it's definitely not my wheelhouse and and I probably shouldn't be lodging too much criticism but um in this sort of progressive movement we talk a really big game about solidarity and about intersectionality and about upholding each other's battles and showing up as allies for each other um and it's really 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 disappointing that we haven't seen stronger action from labor heavy hitters to say, hey, no, we disapprove of the actions that you white settler fisher folk are taking on the East Coast right now, and you need to be respectful of Mi'kma'ki fishers. Um, and again, I, I, I'm not too sure who exactly in the labor movement I should be speaking to in terms of organizations or individuals, but it is sort of upsetting that we haven't seen that happen and that we're not seeing a little more um, of a concerted effort on the part of uh, the labor movement to speak to their own and sort of uh, collect their folk, as it were, in this situation. 